lots and lots of spoilers. As you sit every sundown in the pine grove and watch the sunset, we hope that you will drink the tea of forgetfulness, find yourself awash in dreams of potato brandy, and perhaps, if your heart beats just right, you will hear the gentle, lulling sounds of Max Mike Movies. This is the end, my friend, the end of our story. This is the end, the end. Well, the end of our series, Whitewashing, where we take or took a look at Hollywood being naughty, hiring white actors to play non-white roles in decidedly non-white ways, with whiteness. The final bullet in this chamber is a 1956 film which stars Marlon Brando, an actor who's been in such amazing films as Superman and The Island of Dr. Moreau, appearing as an Okinawan man named Sakini. The film, Tea House of the August Moon. Your hosts, as usual, on my left, if I turn the right way, is Mothra Masher Max Levine. Sing the song, Max. Mothra, yeah, Mothra. Ah, he's coming, ah! <laughs> and I, I am Hello Moto Mike Luce. Say hello, Mike, oh, uh, yeah, that would, uh, that would be That would be you. Yeah, hi. Together, we are Siamese, if you please. Oh, dear God, shoot me <laughs> oh, now, Max. Stop! What has this series done to you? I feel my whiteness coming out. <laughs> Although, it's, if you've ever met me, it's really hard not to notice that I am very, very pale. In, um, in the words, to paraphrase Bill Murray in Space Jam, Mike's not white, Mike is clear. <laughs> Kinda, yeah. <laughs> Before we get to this movie you probably know nothing about, we'd like to go over this week's poll question that you lovely men and hearty women answered. Mm. We asked, who's the biggest star you've actually met and spoken with? Y'all had this to say. Dave, baby, answered with, <clears throat> hmm, tough call. I actually spoke to Sawaguchi Yasuko, or tried to. She got away very skillfully with only a few comments. But she is not really a Hollywood star. Toshiro Mufune was there that day, but I didn't get to do too much other than to bow to him. Melinda hey, Mag- that's pretty good. Yeah, and it's also themic, right? Melinda McGraw was in my high school class, and we were in some plays together. She's massively talented. She was on Mad Men and also played Mrs. Gordon in a Batman movie. End oh, quote. okay. Yeah, coolness, Dave. <laughs> yeah, those are good ones. Next, Val's... I don't know why I said that. Val what? says, quote, a tough question. Now, as I not only li- do I live in Los Angeles, but I used to be a business manager and worked for quite a few. I could drop quite a few names. Your, meaning me, favorite would most likely be Leonard Nimoy, who I saw on a regular basis for a while when he rented an office where I worked. My favorite will always be Esther Williams. We were attending a private party for her nephew, Lorenzo Lamas. My husband was in a band with his then brother-in-law. For me, it was a thrill to meet a member of the Hollywood Golden Age. Hope this didn't come off as me bragging, by the way. Believe me, meeting celebrities isn't always a good thing. End quote. Seriously, how can you find somebody not, not Esther, Esther Williams? Williams? That was exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. <laughs> Thanks, Val. Brian gives us, quote, Lizzie Kaplan, Dave Franco, and John Chu got to meet them on the set of Now You See Me Too, end quote. Neato! John Chu was the director of a film of one of our previous episodes, Crazy Rich Asians. Catch it! <laughs> Lastly, Vince, our Canuck with great luck, or Dear. something. Sorry, Vince. <laughs> he, will be, Replied, he will be disciplined later. Uh, oh, it's the discipline ba- me. It's the discipline bad boy me. brush for you. Oh, the bad boy, bro. Oh, we are really faking out our listeners. Yes, yes, we are. Uh, 
Uh, he replied, quote, does apologizing to Leonard Nimoy after walking into him and knocking him flat on his ass at a Boston sci-fi car show in the late 70s count? I think so. I've been so embarrassed about this that I would never have said it even now if he was still alive, end quote. That's two votes for Leonard, so I guess he wins. But really... All our responders are winners as they get Bumpy Bucks, the currency that nearly exists. Both be sending Bumpy Bucks to the estate of Leonard Nimoy. <laughs> yes, Leonard, they're for you. Uh, look for the special sock offer in the next issue of the Bumpy Hut catalog. Don't forget, Bumpy Bucks make a great St. Swithin's Day wig stuffer. Max, uh, what about you? Uh, who is oh, the uh, greatest... I know you've been you've been pondering going through the very long list of famous oh, yeah. actors that you know. Well, the thing is, I have, you know seen and occasionally made eye contact with a bunch with a few famous people but actually spoken to i'm afraid the most famous one is someone most people are not going to know and that's a guy named bernard hughes oh sure yeah he was let's see i think he played bob newhart's father yes he did he also he had his own sitcom in the i guess 70s called doc oh my he was in Doc Hollywood. He was Dr. Aurelius Hogue, the guy that uh, Michael J. Fox is replacing. He was also the grandfather in Lost Boys, who has the one of the best last lines of any movie. Uh, I was in a when I was in middle school, a few guys from my school got recruited to be in a play at Harvard that was written, directed, featuring, etc. His son, Doug Hughes. And on the last night of the show, Bernard Hughes, who I knew from the, t the sitcom doc, he showed up oh. and he signed my program to Max from one actor to another. Aww. But it was really sweet of him because I was terrible. I've seen Max in a play. He's not terrible. So yeah. there you go. But yeah, um, he, he's my Now you, you've had a whole bunch of them. Most of them are in the comics industry. The only one that I've had any like... Real talk to me, talk to you, but a be, but a ba. Knowing was me, Tom knowing you. <laughs> uh huh, uh huh. Was Tommy Lee Jones. Oh, um, that's a good Tommy one. Lee Jones, when they were film filming Kaboom, uh, I think it was called Blown Away, <laughs> um, an otherwise forgettable um, uh. Uh, bomber movie uh, set in Boston and actually filmed in Boston. That doesn't always happen. Uh, he came into the comic store I was working at the time, uh, Million Year Picnic, best comic store in New England. Indeed. Represent. Uh, he came in and was looking for a comic for his 11-year-old son that had to do with Shakespeare. Now, I was on the bottom and shelf. Uh, and Mike gave him a copy of Cherry Pop-Tart. No, he didn't. Yep, totally did. <laughs> Big collected version. No, I <laughs> don't look it up either. <laughs> uh, I was crouched on the ground, the bottom shelf, shelving things, and heard this voice. <clears throat> and Tommy Lee Jones is over six feet tall, so he's very tall. He's also one of those people that has this presence that even though you've never met the person, and heck, you may never even have seen him in a movie, you automatically call him Sir. Mm, I believe it. So I, I stood up and I was like, what do we, we used to have some Shakespeare comics. There was a good Othello, and I forget the other one, but uh, I think it was, um, might have been Romeo and Juliet, that we were out of. But I knew that there was an episode or an issue in the collected Sandman comics that took place during the quote-unquote per first performance of uh, Midsummer Night's Dream. And it's like, well, that might work out. So I went and brought him over to the aisle that had Sandman in it. He picked up the book, flipped to the one page that had nudity in it, and <laughs> said, no, this won't do. Uh, and yeah, that was my, my um, intersection with Mr. Lee Jones. And he has never forgiven me. And every year, he drives by my house and shoots out the porch light. No, <laughs> 
I would think he would just have to drive by your house, squint at the porch light, and it would just commit suicide. Yeah, he he has presence. He mm. just does. Yeah. And at one point, I may have mentioned this, Carrie Fisher walked into the store and walked out again because she couldn't realize, why, what, what am I doing here? I don't know what she was doing there either. Um, other than that, I have not had any... Oh, well, then there was the point where Warren Beatty was holding up our table at the sushi place and he literally walked into me, not very tall, um, but there was no actual byplay except mentally I was thinking, it's about time you get off our table, freaking Warren. Hey, Dick Tracy, move it. <laughs> uh, but that's it. But, uh, you know, hey, thanks for everybody for yeah. responding. Um, we have a new poll question this week. Oh, God, I got another one I got to study for. Okay. Yep. All right. So. What film did you watch, think was amazing, touching, powerful, or poignant, but which you never need or want to see again? Let That's us know in easier. usual ways, which we'll go over and over and over at the end of the show. But now, unless you know of a way to stop me, we're on to trivia. I'll get the baseball bat. The show. Budget. Nearly four million kabukis. <laughs> Take a whopping nine million kabukis. That's more than I would have thought. Yeah. Supposedly, people were so convinced by Brando's performance, some ticket holders demanded their money back as they didn't think he ever appeared in the film. Well, to be really. fair, he's hard to recognize. I mean, it's you true. wouldn't think he was Japanese, but you wouldn't think he was Marlon Brando either. No, that's true. The original stage play, and yes, this very stiffly blocked yeah. production was a stage play, surprise, yeah. ran for over a thousand performances on Broadway in its initial run and also won the Tony for Best Play of 1954. This it won also the won Tony. won the Pulitzer for Best Drama. This won a Pulitzer? Yes. Wow. Yes. Okay. Now, Brando was not the original choice for the film version of Sakini. That Please. actor... Well Japanese actor, uh, not that Japanese oh. actor. It was well-known Japanese actor Gene Kelly. <laughs> wait, wait a minute. <laughs> yes, and I will uh, abstain from doing the obvious oh, joke there. That's right. He's from Hokkaido, wasn't he? Yeah. No. Hokkaido, New Jersey. Maybe. Yeah. There was a sharp rivalry between actors Brando and Glenn Ford to the point where each was trying to steal scenes from the other. Oh, that's sad. Yeah. I mean, Even, say what you will about Marlon Brando. Nope, you can't steal a scene from him. Not in this film. <laughs> Perhaps in Superman you could. Uh, Superman, my boy, you come to me and you ask me a favor. You don't even say hello. <laughs> anyway, um... Even Brando himself would later admit to being miscast in this movie. He admitted oh. this in his own memoir, so... I oh. guess that's... Well, that's mighty white of him. <laughs> Very, Yes. <laughs> Um, there is, however, a history of Sakini being played by non-Japanese actors. Others who have played him include David Wayne, Burgess Meredith, <laughs> and inexplicably Eli Wallach. <laughs> but, Eli Wallach. <laughs> who I think is about 7 foot 12. Eli um, Wallach is like 5 feet tall. He was. Oh, I was thinking he was very tall. Maybe I have the wrong no, Eli Wallach. He was in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. I think I was in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Oh, no, wait. <laughs> I was in The Dirty Dozen. That's yeah, there right. you go. <laughs> We wouldn't see Glenn Ford and Marlon Brando together again until the 1978 Superman movie. <laughs> That's right. Glenn which, played uh, Pa Kent, didn't he? Yes. I don't believe they appeared anywhere near each other, which oh. is probably a good thing. A good deal of the exterior locations were indeed filmed in Okinawa, which is probably why it cost so much. And this was MGM's biggest hit the year it was released. Oh, weak, weak, weak year for MGM. 
guess so. Do you uh, do you have any other bits of trivia that you know of without looking on the uh, IMDb page? <laughs> Big chunks of this movie, the dialogue is in Japanese. Mm-hmm. It's just not in Okinawan. It's in mainland no. Japanese, and mm. yeah, which is different enough. Uh, I'd also like to point out. You know, all of this, oh yes, we're trying to make uh, Okinawa stand on its own. There's a big thing with uh, American paternalism. Okinawa was only turned over back to Japan. Do you know when? Can I guess? Go ahead. I'm going to guess 1986. Uh, Actually, uh, not quite that bad. It was 1972. Ah, okay. Yeah, almost 30 years after the end of the war. Uh, That's pretty much all I've got. Mm. Well, I should get to the plot. It's 1946, post-war Okinawa. Colonel Purdy is in charge of the reinvigorating of the occupied Japanese island. In comes Captain Fisby, a rather ineffectual officer who's probably on his last assignment before being stripped of officer status and sent to the Latrine Corps. It's going to be his job to get the small town of Tabiki back on its feet and educated in the American Democratic Way. Please note the capital letters. To help him through this task is Sakini, a local who speaks English and acts as translator when he's not trying to wheel and deal all those bumbling Americans around him. Fisby, lacking an actual backbone, is soon being railroaded by the very people he's trying to help, though it soon turns out that all they really need from him is some supplies and a few connections. It's East meets West in a steel cage match of culture, or, well, it's a comedy of errors, a tea house of trouble, a showdown of shochu. Will Fisby's eyes be opened? Will Colonel Purdy finally achieve his one true goal, that of attaining the rank of general before retirement? And what of Colonel Potter? The end. down so uh, as we mentioned last week this film is probably best known to max and i as a film in the golden turkey awards that book from 1980 that um gave it an award for marlon brando's portrayal or at least a convincing portrayal of this okinawa named sakini um and to this day up until watching it last night the only thing i knew about this film was that award and a black and white photo close-up of Marlon doing his best, uh, oh boss, oh boss face, which... Yeah, Marlon Brando also should have won an award for best impersonation of an old cartoon character because he plays the character very much like Charlie, Mr. Magoo's Japanese houseboy. Oh, God. I mean, it could have been Jitsu, I suppose. Yeah. Oh, um, Lord. This Say what you will about Alec Guinness back in uh, Majority of One, and there's plenty to say, as you know if you've heard the episode, he at least gives Mr. Asano some dignity. And (laughs) and Marlon just says, Dignity? What's that? I... I don't... See, here's one problem. I don't know what the role on Broadway was like. Now, it being Marlon Brando, my guess is he didn't care, uh, because Marlon will do what Marlon does. I read a little bit about this, about the the stage show. First of all, on stage, almost it was almost always played by a white actor, and the author wanted it that way. Yep, I did read that. He actually said because he wanted to show the closeness of the races, or how, you know, we're all the same, or some inane (laughs) justification for I've never met a Japanese person. Well, and and uh, the thing is, he's also 
He's described as being anywhere from age 30 to age 60, because you know how those Asians all look young until they look old. Pearl cream. Uh, (laughs) Ancient (laughs) Chinese secret, huh? (laughs) Calgon, take me away. Uh, (laughs) But, uh, yeah. Yeah. The character, I think, is v- on stage is very supposed to be very similar. This sort of uh, both wise, as he, he described as both wise and childlike, which basically manages to cram two of the major stereotypes about Asian men into one character because they're usually either seen as oh these are just you know barbaric children who need to be taught civilization or they're Kwai Chang Kane and they're, uh, yeah. you know, I know I know he's half Chinese, but they're supposed to be wise, mystic, and, you know, oh, listen to the rhythm of the uh, earthworm as it devours the silk plant thing. <laughs> <laughs> Max, you know nothing of Japanese culture, do you? <laughs> Not as such, no. Ah. <laughs> it's, so, okay, so, there's some... You know, I don't want to actually get to to Brando yet. Uh, there's a okay. few other things because I think he's yeah. going to be a, a, a. I don't think the discussion's going the way that I thought it was yeah. going to go. But anyway, what? yeah. The opening song we get is traditional Japanese. Yeah. It's actually a song called Sakura, which yes. is the Japanese word for uh, cherry blossom. Yes, it's also the only Japanese song most Americans have ever been exposed to. And you know. At least it's a real song. Yes. I mean, I suppose it's like everybody, let's say everybody in China and Japan has made an, um, a movie about Americans and they always play Yankee Doodle. It's the same thing. Yes. Um, it did start out with, there's a very troubling note in the credits. I don't know if you caught it, Max, but a word came up and I honestly don't know what the word means. I know it's the name of a film production company, but when Dae came up, I was like, ah, Gamera! Because <laughs> uh, I think it's the same company that would eventually make the Gamera films. Oh, dear. <laughs> yeah, but hey, you uh, know. Yeah. Um, what, what surprised me was the cast. Never, not just Marlon yes. Brando, but first off, Paul Ford, who, right. uh, uh, who plays uh, the Cur- Colonel, who plays Purdy. Colonel Purdy. Who I, as soon as he started talking, I'm going, I know that guy. Where do I know him from? And I know him from he plays the Mayor Shim in the Music Man. You, know, you okay. watch your phraseology. Yeah, and he's he is. This is a guy who, on his SAG card, should simply read, plays a curmudgeon. <laughs> That's it. The guy is curmudgeon. All, he's played curmudgeons in everything. And he's really funny. He's really good at it. And yeah. then we have Eddie Albert. Ed, okay, so Eddie Albert, for those who don't know, he's probably best known <laughs> for, and quite honestly, kind of does a precursor for his role in Green Acres, because <laughs> what does he play in Green Acres? Farmer. He plays Oliver Wendell Douglas, a New York lawyer who wants to go into the middle of nowhere and start a farm because he's really into plants. And who is this guy? He's a professional psychiatrist in the army who wants to go out into the middle of nowhere and study plants. I don't remember Eddie Albert being that buff, though. He's pretty bulky in this one. And blonde. I always remember him being silver-haired, but I guess he he was was young at some point. He was. The the other thing you might know Eddie Albert from is uh, Roman Holiday. He plays Gregory Peck's friend, the photographer. He's done tons of stuff. Um, I mostly know him from Green Acres. For those who've never seen Green Acres, Green Acres is one of the Paul Henning trio uh, the, trifecta. The, the Hooterville oeuvre. Of... <laughs> so most people know the main show, which was the Beverly Hillbillies. Yeah. Green Acres, 
was honestly a, a kind of weirdly subversive show. They did a lot of really weird fourth wall breaking. Mm. Some of the characters would actually react to the credits as they were appearing on the screen. Yeah, or they were acting like they could hear the theme music, but that, that's getting way yeah. off track. That's so okay. And of course, the sergeant is played by Harry Colonel Potter Morgan. In a role that will surprise yeah, you. Yeah, sadly, he gets to do very little. Well... And I kept wanting him to take charge, right? Because I'm used to him having a higher rank. But the two things that are different here is that, A, he's got stripes, and B, he's got hair. Um, <laughs> the, the other surprise part, and I had I didn't know this, I had to look her up, was uh, Machiko Kyo, who right. I, I have never heard of. No. Most of the viewers never heard of. At the time, she was one of the biggest film stars in Japan. Getting her yep. was a huge get. I wouldn't be surprised if her salary was a big chunk of of the budget. We also have to remember, probably Marlon Brando could command quite a bit of money. This movie came after he did On the Waterfront, Streetcar Named Desire, and The Wild One. This is not him desperate for a part. <laughs> and yet, it feels that way. Yeah, it does. Um, yeah, you can just compare and contrast Brando here and Brando in Streetcar. See our previous episode on Streetcar Named Desire. Um, there's also one other care or one other actor here that was very surprising, and that was Glenn Ford. This is not the type of part that Glenn Ford usually plays, which is like kind of bumbling and comedic. Glenn Ford's usually a, a know, square-jawed hero type. Yeah, and tough, you know, stoic. And I gotta say, this shows real range for him. Yeah. Um, I don't think there's any bad performances. We'll get to Brando in a second. In the film. My problem, and this is one of my earliest line or earliest notes, maybe 10, 15 minutes in, my note was, is this supposed to be a comedy? I honestly wasn't sure. And you know what? I'm not still not sure. It is. I mean, it's pretty I was surprised by this. I didn't know what to expect in this movie. This was a wacky 50s war comedy. And there were a bunch of them. Things like the horizontal lieutenant and uh Operation Petticoat. Uh these things that were either World War II or post-World War II, wacky stuff. You know, so I, zany, or I, I suppose it's supposed to be zany. The, we can discuss about how actually, you know, funny this comedy is. Well, let's. did you make any chortling-like noise at all during this film? Uh, I, I could sit there and go, ah, insert laugh here. <laughs> and uh, what surprised me was... Setting aside the colossal racism of his performance, Rando was kind of funny. He had really good comic timing. His phys he was really good at the physical comedy, which is not something I associate with Marlon Brando. No. The only comedy I remember seeing him in, and he's not being particularly funny in it, is called The Freshman. It's a movie with Matthew oh, Broderick, yeah. where he's basically playing... He's supposed to be playing the character that Vito Corleone was based on. So uh, he plays it straight, but he's actually pretty funny in it as a straight man. <laughs> trying, to, trying to picture Vito Corleone doing stand-up. <laughs> uh, why did the chicken uh, cross the road? Tell me, you know, why the chicken? The Italians, they, they're walking like this, but the Moriarty <laughs> family, they walk like this. Men be different from women, you know what I'm saying? But... <laughs> God. What? Now I want to see it. I uh, want to see Marlon Brando. What's the deal with Hyman Roth? I asked you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, yeah, but yeah, the performances I didn't have a problem with. I, what I had a problem with was the script. Yeah. The script, I just was like, this is, I, in one of my later ones notes is, it, this movie's painfully unfunny. Like, you can feel the joke, like, oh, that's a joke, but that's your reaction to it. It's like data watching comedy. Ah, this is where someone would laugh. Yeah. You know, you just it, you it, don't. Actually, that's, a good, that's actually a very good analogy. It just reminds me of when data is, that episode, he's studying humor, and he just lays, <laughs> so, so false teeth staggering around and acting like an idiot is funny. That's basically what this is. Like, ah, piling many Japanese people onto an army jeep and driving with a goat is funny. All I, but yeah. there is a scene, by the way, where uh, Sakini is supposed to be escorting Captain Fisby and that name, yikes. <sighs> but uh, they're supposed to drive to the fictional village of Stereotypica, I don't remember. Um, <laughs> Tobiki or some such? Uh, Watiti? Yeah. Droids? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, for various reasons, he's like, oh, yes, we're, you know, this grandma, this old woman wants to come with us because her daughter her, her daughter lives there or her granddaughter lives there. And so all these other people have to come along and their goat and this old hitchhiker. And all I could think is, oh, Lord, it's the Japanese Beverly Hillbillies. <laughs> Jedu, Jedu, or it's the Jodes from Grapes uh, of Wrath, all piled up on top uh, of the truck. I thought you meant the singing. No, Jodes. no, no, no. No. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I actually I've mentioned this in, in a previous episode. I have seen the Beverly Hillbillies dubbed into Japanese, wow. and it is bizarre because I'm just like, what are they taking from this? How are they possibly translating this into anything that makes any kind of sense? Never mind, is somehow funny, but the, whatever. The thing is, list. It's pretty clear it's supposed to be a comedy from the beginning when you have Colonel Purdy, who is you know using all these malapropisms and getting like yeah it's like my wife says east is east and west is west and never shall there be a twain, aha, aha, <laughs> funny, <laughs> yeah that's that's about the level of the humor of this film, um, and I, I I was very surprised when I did research for trivia that it was not only popular but like won an award. It won a like, Pulitzer? How did that happen? <laughs> I don't know. Well, okay, so and there's. We're going to, I want to still get to this part, um, because I, there are things about it that surprised me in a good way. Um, I will say that I don't yet understand the point of the movie. Like it doesn't, I guess it's supposed to be funny that the villagers all take advantage of the captain and he basically eventually just sort of gives in and things work out for the best. But it sort of also suggests that if he wasn't there, they wouldn't need him anyway. It's kind of a satire, and I know this is sort of the intention. It's a, a quote, gentle satire of American paternalism toward other cultures yeah. and other countries. And I think that's no. part of it. It's like, yeah, look at this. We've this is night. This is after World War II. We've just finished. Let's face it, killing these people. Mm. Okinawa was at the target of one of the heaviest conventional bombings. In yeah. World War II, they referred to it as the steel tsunami. Yeah. And thousands of civilians were killed. Yeah. And Americans came in, you know, when, when during the American occupation, it's like, all right, we're going to teach you all to be dem Democrats. We're gonna, you're going you're gonna to learn democracy and freedom and America. And, <laughs> and you know, because that's the best way, and we don't care about your system of government or anything you've done because it's wrong. Sorry. Yeah. We won, so you have to be like us. 
Yeah, and it's kind of taking true. a shot at that. And in a way, it's a, it kind of works because it's very at the end. It's like oh, they're just going to do what they do, and they're letting us help them do it, or they're using us for that. But they're not becoming Americanized. If anything, you know, both uh, uh, Captain Fisby and Captain McAvoy become you know Japaneseed. In a way, yeah. Um, and here's the other thing that's... I might as well get to this, because yeah. there's going to be a lot to talk about. Five years later, in 1961, you're going to get portrayals of Japanese people not entirely unlike, or in fact exactly like, uh, Mickey Rooney in yeah. Breakfast at Tiffany's, yeah. which is the big buck teeth, the glasses, yeah. the squinty eyes, the R's and the L's reversed, the whole horrible thing. This film, and this is one of the things that surprised me, is while they do portray the folks of Okinawa as being rustic, quite honestly, they probably were in the 40s. These were peasant farmers, yeah. And fishermen, you know, occasionally. Um, and there's, there's a bit of comedic value, but there's also an... Honest attempt, and this is what caught caught me sideways. Mm -hmm. There's an honest attempt to portray some of the culture with some respect. So yeah, we start with soccer, which is the only song that Americans might know. Mm -hmm. But it was actually, it wasn't like they, like last week's film where they missed mixed Western music yeah. and fake Chinese. They just play soccer mm -hmm. on the on the. I forget the name. Is of that the a, is that a sampan? Uh, no, that's a boat. Oh, that, that's right. But there's something with a similar name. Yeah, I can't remember the it's name of that. It's basically a lute. It's a uh, It's a long, very long, it's like a three foot, four foot long stringed instrument. Um generally played by women. Yeah, with the um, uh, picks, I think. Yep. And Something. she they play it later. But there are moments in this film where they do speak Japanese, a lot of Japanese. They never translate it. No, no subtitles, they just have, nothing. They have Sakini translate. And I will say they do skillfully let the audience know that what he's telling them is not probably exactly what they're saying. Hmm. Um, he's also egging on the people so that he can pretend that they're answering what um, Glenn Ford's character wants them to answer and so on and so forth. But... Especially towards the end, one of the things is that he wants to, or according to the army, he's supposed to build them a school, and it's supposed to be five-sided. It's supposed you know, to be pentagonal. For, yeah, the, the colonel wants it to look like the Pentagon. Yeah. And that always got me that Glenn Ford is, is stunned that none of them know what the Pentagon is. This is, oh, we know right. what five sides are. What is the Pentagon? Like, right. how do you not know what the how would How would anyone in Japan know what the military headquarters look, that it's a weird five-sided building? Right. And what they basically are like, well, we don't want a Pentagon or we don't want a school. We want a, a tea house. And they basically trick Captain Fisby, who is literally a gummy bear. Yeah, uh, the man has no into, spine. He's he's one of those really annoying uh, milksop characters who is very easy to push around, even though he tries not to be. And you really have to wonder how he made it to the rank of captain. Yeah, because, well, my guess is that he might have been a college boy. Yeah, he was probably one of ROTC and started as yeah. a lieutenant and, like, I don't know, didn't actively murder anybody, so. No, because we, we find out he's been bounced from yeah. job to job to he's job. He's a for huge screw-up. He's screwed up in every department, but all of his stuff has been rear echelon. He was never in combat, no. which is an interesting, I think, I actually thought that was a fairly subtle thing. It's like, this is a guy who never killed any Japanese. He never fought yeah. these people. He doesn't see them as the enemy. 
No. And that was the interesting part is what it's he spends some time early in the film trying to fight them to get to get them to do what he wants, what he's been assigned to do. And eventually, because he's spineless, he gives in. But it's not just that he gives in. He actually starts seeing the value of their culture. Mm. He starts dressing like them. Well, it's a bathroom, well, yeah. but it's all he's got. He wears the he wooden starts, sandals they make for him. Where's the hat? He tries to find ways to help them. It's like, look, you people are good at these at making these things. Let's make souvenirs and sell them to the Navy. Well, it turns out the Navy doesn't want any of any of that. And so when they bring the souvenirs that they've worked hard on back to the village, unsold, the village men are all like, well, we're all going to get drunk. And he's like, wait, get drunk on what? <laughs> and he says, oh, well, we make brandy, which is not the right word for what they mm. make. And he's like, well, but I thought you only could grow sweet potatoes. And I was like, yeah, we have this, this sweet potato brandy. And they bring it out. It's actually called shochu. You can get it in the States. Mm. It's, I guess the closest equivalent would be vodka. Well, it's made out of potatoes, in effect. Yeah, it's not grain, so it's not a whiskey. Um, it's pretty harsh, I will say that. Um, but they make this shochu. And, of course, if you have any kind of servicemen, you're <laughs> probably going to have drinkers. Yep. And, and it becomes a Fisbee huge figures, industry. Well, Fisbee figures out, hey, we can sell this. There's no supply of booze for most people. And I'm guessing that most people have not learned to like sake. Their problem. Mm. Um, so he has them. It's like, hey, let's start making this stuff. And they're thrilled because, okay, cool. We we do this anyway. But if we can make money at this, sure. And he's like, okay, now we can build the school. They're like, well, we don't want a school. We want a tea house. Because if we have a tea house, then people will come and spend money to do that too. And so he finally gives in. And the thing is, is that he gets into it. He's like, yes, we're going to build this tea house and it's going to be cool. And when we finally get to the end of the film, this quote unquote comedy suddenly becomes a travelogue and there's like no English spoken. They go through the ceremony. They show us the geisha. And I want to talk about the oh, geisha. Oh yeah, me too. This is really interesting performance that's done in his honor for him having helped them. And there's no, like they don't make fun of it at all. There's it's no actually attempt. really beautiful. I mean, the dance is remarkable. Yeah. I thought, I don't know if it's an obon dance or what. It's a dance with two fans and multiple like layers of kimono, which yeah. one one review I read said that might have represented the seasons, but there were only three, not four. Well, I think at one point she's also got a blue fan and an orange fan, and I thought that must be night and day. Yeah. But it was it was it felt very traditional and very real. It didn't feel like some American director came in and said, "Okay, you Japanese dance up and down over there, and you dance up and down over there, and it'll look great." It actually felt like they were like, "Hey, could you do this for us, and we'll film it?" And they were like, "Sure." Um, and it was not. They, it really wasn't presented to be anything other than what it was. Yeah. It was like, what's this doing here? It actually felt really out of place and yet beautiful and kind of poignant. Um, and then, of course, in the middle of this, Sakini comes back. <laughs> yes. But also then then Glenn Ford is trying to teach them all to sing uh, Deep in the Heart of Texas. Which, you know, it, okay. Which is I cute, mean, heck, except, boy, he cannot sing. Which is fine, because, yeah. hey, where did karaoke come from? Yeah. Came from Japan. Yeah. So the idea of singing to uh, loudly, badly to songs that you don't know that well, that's where it comes from. So You brought up one of the things that surprised me a lot in this was when he first arrives, people give him all these gifts when he arrives in the town. Right. And one of the gifts he is given is this guy gives him his daughter, and she is a, that's Lotus Blossom. Well, daughter. Well, yes, he yes he claims he Sakini says it's his daughter. It it clearly right. is not. But no. Lotus Blossom and Lotus Blossom is a geisha. Yep. And there's initially a lot of jokes about oh he doesn't understand and he thinks 
as most Americans did and probably a lot still do, that a geisha is a prostitute. Right. And they really aren't. And this movie explains it. I I, was so not prepared for that. I don't know how how fully accurate it was, because I think it's more complicated, but the geisha, the closest... uh, there really isn't much of a Western analog, a European analog to it, except maybe uh, the courtesans in like 17th mm-hmm. and 18th century France, who were paid more for conversation. The geisha, that was the one thing. It's like, oh yeah, by the way, can you teach all the women to be geisha? Yeah. It's like, um, no, you can't. That takes <laughs> years, and you have to, you know, be allowed to do it. And I don't, th- I don't even know if you were allowed to train peasants to do it. I yeah, I honestly don't know enough about yeah. it. What I do know is that they were performers of art, music, and dance. They were also they, kind of therapists. Yeah, well, they could be, but it's they were you, they were not somebody you paid to have sex with. That is not what they were for. And actually, some of the most traditional songs, dances, and stuff from Japan were what's the word I want? Sort of kept and nurtured and continued by geisha. They were the ones who would do this. And it was definitely a hands-off thing. Yes, they served sake and people would get drunk and things would happen, but that's not what they were for. And when they started talking, the the American officers started talking about it, getting all uptight about it. It's like, oh, we're going to do this again. And as you said, no, they come out and Sakini tells us what geisha actually are. And they say that they are there to listen when people need to unburden themselves. They're there to listen. And they they make, as they say, they're there to make a poor man feel rich, make you feel important, make you feel, basically says he's there to make you feel seen and heard. So while there is obviously a, misogynistic side oh, to yeah. the the office if you will um at least in this case they were trying to educate people watching this film wait that's the part that's even weirder is that this is 10 years and this is the film is actually to be fair is 11 years uh after world war ii the play was a couple of years before that and what we have is a film that instead of making fun of a beaten enemy is actually kind of treating it with a reverence well, in most cases. Well, trying to. The whole thing For the with, time period? For, yeah, for the time period, it's unusual. But there's the whole, of course, you know, first of all, of course, her name is Lotus Blossom because that's the only Japanese female name most people knew at the time, the translation anyway. And uh, at the end, it turns out she has fallen in love with this man she cannot actually speak to. And But th- she also... Goes off and marries Eddie from uh, um, the uh, majority of one, uh, <laughs> or Speed Racer. He kind of looked like Speed little, Racer a little bit. That's right. She 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 does suddenly turn to another guy very quickly. Uh, that felt unearned. That whole emotional thing. It's actually kind of touching. At one point, the colonel shows up and orders the tea house be destroyed, which it turns out it isn't. But she's sitting there in the ruins of it, and she basically pantomimes a tea ceremony with him. Mm. Uh, with, with Glenn Ford, and you know he he clearly doesn't really know what it is, but he understands that it's important, and yeah. he responds accordingly. And you get the feeling if you have to wonder, he thinks you know she says he she wants she tells him she wants to go with him when he goes back to America, and you have to wonder is he saying no because oh I can't bring a Japanese woman home or. No, because I'm about to be court-martialed and go home in disgrace and maybe go to jail. Yeah. Well, I think he also just doesn't love her. Yeah, he doesn't know her. No, and how could he? I would say, too, you know, again, I'm having to judge a performance that's done entirely in a foreign language, but 
she has some real range even in this part. Mm. She starts off as this very pushy, showy, you know, ha-ha, titillating character, but she shows that she has a deep respect for her own culture and also that she does have passion. It doesn't happen to be for him, but that it doesn't need to be for him, you know? And in a way, the white people in this film that are actually portraying white people, when mm. we talk about Brenda, mm. we're getting to him, don't really come out on top. No. Um, the Japanese basically prove we don't really need you. Um, in fact, when they were told, uh, Harry Morgan, who plays not Colonel Potter or even Sergeant Potter, <laughs> uh, is told to destroy the distilleries and to destroy the tea house. Uh, they're ahead of him, and they're like, they have him first. They're like, well, before you destroy it, try this shochu, see what you think. Shochu is not a weak drink. <laughs> uh, so he tries the shochu, and then they just take him to some water barrels, and he starts bashing on these water barrels, and they all stand around and look real sad. But <laughs> it turns it, out that he, he didn't destroy anything. He just, just water barrels. Yeah, and, and the then, tea house, it turns out that it's remarkably like a movie set that they just took, <laughs> <laughs> that they just took, they took it apart. Right. Because a lot of those buildings, let's face it, they were not, you know, a lot of built buildings in Japan are were not built very sturdy because they kept expecting them to be knocked down by earthquakes. So they were very, they were used to being able to very quickly replace them. And just like in that uh, Amish barn building scene with Harrison Ford. <laughs> that was what I thought. It's like, oh, look, it's the Japanese Amish and they're having a tea house raising. At least they had a foundation. <clears throat> yeah. Uh, <laughs> We won't, we won't talk about that. Um, yeah, so this film was not... I really expected it to be a lot more no-ticky, no-shirty. And it, especially when I realized it was supposed to be a comedy. And I'm not going to say that they were successful entirely in their wanting to be respectful to this culture, especially considering the time period. But they kind of were. Kind of, but and, there's still a lot of it. I mean, oh yes, when... Uh, at the end, when the colonel realizes his terrible mistake because there's a basically deus ex machina, because he want, he's like so horrified that Fisbee's, you know, you're selling liquor and you've built yeah. a tea house and not a school, tear it all down. And then he gets a call and finds out that uh, there's been reports about this and the people in the Senate are really impressed and they're saying that this, uh, this town is a real example of American go-getism. Yeah. And when... Sakini basically says, yeah, we, we fooled you. Fis and Fisby says, yeah, you really are a rascal. And the colonel says, he's not a rascal. He's an American. It's like, no, he's not. <laughs> and he's not even going there. And he doesn't want to be. No. There's a oh. lot of that. There's a lot of patronizing attitude in this. But I, again, for me, I was surprised at it being the 50s that there is any yeah. respect. No, that is true. Given the Japanese, yeah. and that actually brings up one brings me to one of our talking point questions, which is, and we've used this in some of the other films in the Whitewashing series, is this movie sincere? I honestly think it is. I, think it I don't think it's is. it's not fully successful at it, but I actually think it is. Yeah, I think so. I think it really is trying to say, look, this is a different culture, and they don't need us to turn them into Americans. No, they'll do it by themselves. No, no, no. <laughs> Uh, but we actually talked about it. If you haven't listened to our episode on Ghost in the Shell, there's actually some interesting parallels because that film is also connected to Japan post-war. Um, so uh, see our previous episode yeah. on Ghost in the Shell. There, 
there is a point uh, I do have to bring up that's an uncomfortable one. The one real problem I had with this movie is it makes the occupation of Okinawa look kind of, you know... Fun. Yeah, fun and pleasant and (laughs) at least trying to help. The occupation of Okinawa, especially initially, was pretty horrible. Yeah. The American ser- servicemen there were un- asp- tr- did not treat the people terribly well, especially the women. What? Yeah, I know. It's shocking. There was there was yeah. a lot. There were massive protests even up through the sixties and seventies about it. Oh no, it's still going it's on. It's still going on. Yeah, because there's still a military base there. Yep, and boy, did the Japanese want it gone because the service people there continuously get into trouble. Yeah, yeah, um, it's. It was not. It, they make they they sanitize the occupation way too much. Oh yes, and they well, did bring up an interesting point that Okinawa is like they're saying, yeah, we were conquered by the Japanese. We're not. We don't. We weren't really part of ja- of Japan. They made us part of Japan. Right. They have their own language, their own history. And of course, the Japanese aren't exactly, um, shall we say, innocent of occupation and atrocities uh, China, <laughs> uh, during World War II. Yeah, so, well. yeah. Um, nobody is guiltless yeah. at all. They're, they're, it's just that the Americans appear guiltless yeah. in this film. Actually, sort of the Okinawans, they basically just sit there like, yeah, we don't bother anybody. We just get uh, conquered every few hundred years. And, you know, for all I know, that's true. I honestly don't no know clue. the history of no Okinawa. Clue. No. Um, but I think we should finally get to that point okay. the point that brought us here and that's marlon brando and again i will not make the obvious joke because yeah, yeah. it's obvious and it's in poor taste and he has a lot of r's and l's in his name yes yeah so this is definitely whitewashing there's no getting oh, yeah. around that and i gotta say the makeup is such that I can understand why some of those ticket gro- uh, buyers were like there's no marlon brando in this film i don't see any marlon brando because mm. The, the makeup is very flexible. It molds with his face. They thankfully don't get too close. Mm. I don't see any seams. Now, that being said, I don't know if I'd fall for him being like, I, there's something not quite right about his face. Yeah. But it is, it is a whitewashed Marlon Brando. It is. Does this whitewashing, because we, we talked about how the author wanted it to be a white actor, does it serve a purpose or not? I don't think it does. I'm sorry. I think this could have been played by a Japanese actor just easily and probably with greater dignity. Now, to give Brando credit, he spent like a month in Okinawa trying to get the accent right, and people have said, if nothing else, he does, when he speaks English, and even when he speaks Japanese, if that is Japanese that he's speaking... Some, some of it, of it some of it is that he obviously has learned phonetically. He does have an Okinawan accent, I'm told. I, I couldn't tell you. Me either. But he didn't have to be Marlon. It didn't have to be a white guy. It really didn't. I don't think that brought anything to it except embarrassment. The part is very bow and scrape, and they even do the lazy Japanese. Is that a trope? That's usually... It's a trope almost in America, an American stereotype for virtually every other country mm, is at some point... Americans aren't lazy. Oh, no. <laughs> I'll admit right now, I'm a lazy person. Yes. Lazy, 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 right lazy. Right here, very lazy, and fan fiercely proud of it. Yes. Uh, well, I will be when I get around to yeah. it. Uh, <laughs> here's the thing, though. As badly as, as we think Marlon Brando played this part, would a Japanese actor playing the same part feel any less 
what's the word I want? Um, Ringy? When you, when you talk down to somebody. Oh, uh, patronizing? Uh, condescending. condescending? Yeah. The part itself is very condescending. Because like I said, the character is a mashup of all the stereotypes. Yeah. You know, the, the sneaky, the uh, childlike yet wise, but trying to put one over on people. Mm. Uh, you know, making j- the part of the joke being his broken English or his misunderstanding of uh, euphemisms. Yeah. Yeah, it, that is, it is not a, a good part. It is, it is not, it, it is not a complimentary part. It is not a part that I think any Japanese actor would have been proud to take, but no. I bet someone could, but I think someone else could have brought more of the, the subtle, the subtle wisdom and the understanding <laughs> to it that you could have brought to the character. There is nothing subtle. There is about nothing Sakini. about Sakini. No. The, no, the way he's played isn't. But he could have been. He could have been much less obvious. Is like, hi, I'm mistranslating what you're saying, and I'm mistranslating what they're saying, and I can't believe you don't realize it. Gosh, it's funny. Ha yeah. ha. Yeah. yeah. I don't know if there's Marlon... any way to salvage that part, but I, or to be fair, the play I. I just, I mean, I, I really was struggling with trying to figure out if it was a comedy or not. And then, of course, when I found out it won a Pulitzer for drama, I was really confused. It's yeah. like, well, okay, as a drama, I can kind of see it, although it's not particularly dramatic. And it's like, oh, no, wait, that's supposed to be, f- oh, and that's supposed to be funny. I guess it's, a st- okay. I, I've, I've rarely seen a comedy fall so flat. Like, I just, literally nothing made me laugh. Um and I, I guess, sadly, Sakini's bowing, scraping, smiling, he calling everybody boss, every sentence, oh, boss, I get this for you, boss, blah, 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 is supposed to be funny. But if it's funny, it's only because we're looking down on the character because he's another culture. So that's not funny. Yeah, um, I, yeah it's, it's a weird, weird role. Here's the thing, Max. Uh, also, having seen a now a number of the films that were in that category of the Golden Turkey Awards, yeah. would you still have given it to Marlon Brando? I don't know. I gotta say, I still think Mickey Rooney's Japanese character is way more offensive. Yeah, there's a lot less of him. That's true. He's not a major really? character, but it's so much worse. And uh, I think even <laughs> Dr. Lowe is, is a little worse. Well, it's also so inconsistent. But then again, I'm looking at Robbie Benson, uh, and Robbie Benson does this Athena where, you know, I, I was doing Italian there. I can't even do it, but it's like... Um, it's a me, I, yeah, Robbie Benson. <laughs> <laughs> Robbie Benson's Chicano back in Walk Proud is... Especially when he... Like this film where he's surrounded by competent or even better than Robbie Benson Chicano actors. And it's like, oh, we can't have him. We have to have the white guy. Just uh, put some Kiwi shoe polish in his hair and uh, give him some contacts. He'll Everyone will be fooled. Um, I don't know that I would give it to Marlon yeah. Brando. And I think one of the reasons I wouldn't is because it's not as much him, I think, as the part. Yeah, I think that he saw the part and he honestly said, well, if I'm playing this part, I have to bring as much of this part into my performance as I can, and this is what I have to work with. Now, the fact that he was trading uh, scene-stealing moments with Glenn Ford, and again, Glenn Ford, to me, that's not the part I usually think of no. when I think Glenn Ford. Glenn Ford's like a sturdy cowboy, or he's a, a you know a rough-and-tumble army guy. Mm. Not, I, I don't know, I, who is this? This is like... A cousin of a Jerry Lewis character. Mm. I mean, well, kinda. you know, he's he's the uh, sort of lovable loser. 
Yeah, yeah. But it's like, I... I almost, almost can't fault Brando, and yet... <laughs> I, uh, I think I still will, but I don't think I'd have given him the, the, the award. And I think part of the reason is because the film still has those points where it feels like it's treating the Japanese culture with at least a little respect. I don't think it's fully, again, I don't think it's fully successful, but there are, I've seen worse and Mickey Rooney does, as far as I'm concerned, jump to the top of the list of the ones that I can think of. You could say Warner Oland for uh, Charlie Chan because he plays it as stereotypical as possible. Mm. And he did it many times. Um, But yeah, I don't think I would give it to him. One of the characters, I just real quick want to mention you talk about the moments that are surprising in the in the sort of dignity they offer. One of the characters that really surprised me was uh, Jun Nagami as Mr. Seiko, the old uh, cup maker. Oh, was the, the, only, the only other person in the village who speaks English and speaks it better than Marlon Brando's character does. Because he's dubbed. <laughs> yeah. But he he is given first off, it gives it you you begin to wonder if Sakini is putting on that whole switching the R's and the L's and the uh, sort of, in effect, Japanese version of step and fetch it, if maybe Uh, that's a put-on. But he, Mr. Seiko, has this real dignity about him and this spiritual quality. He's, He's the guy, again, he's kind of the cliche of the wise old Japanese man, except he's a wise old Japanese man. You believe that. Yeah. And so uh, I'm going to take a little side trip here. One of my favorite documentaries ever is a National Geographic special called The Living Treasures of Japan. And it's about these people that the Japanese government has designated as a living treasure, somebody that embodies a an art or a skill or an artisanship of something that they want to continue. And they're given a stipend and they are treated reverently and one of the things they have to do is teach and one of the people in this is a person who makes pottery the way that they did in ancient Japan. that's what this guy reminds me of he makes all these cups and when glenn ford's character fisby says hey how many of these can you make and he's like well i basically put my heart into every one of these i can maybe do one every week or two like that's the kind of thing like if you learn anything about Japanese culture, that entry point actually leads to some really interesting stuff. And yeah, that character that he's there, he's, it's like they, they're they kind of making fun with him, but even then, not really. Because if you take a moment to think about it, it's like, that's craftsmanship that we don't see anymore. Um, and, he, you know, could he make, I don't know, a bookcase? Probably not. Maybe the only thing he can do is cups, but he makes them really well. Um, and sadly, those stupid Navy people didn't buy them because those things are probably amazing. Yeah, and as he, they, they, as Sakini re- reports, it says, no, we can get it for cheaper in the five and dime. Yeah, but they're made by machines yeah. and they're, they break every three weeks or whatever. Um, I've, I'm out of notes for this one. How about you, Matt? Yeah, that's pretty much, uh, that's pretty much it. And now for the surprise. The Roundup. So, Max. Yeah. You uh you hadn't seen this, had you? I had not. Uh, and, this uh, movie was oh boy. First off, it was just hard to watch. I had to stop it every few minutes. Why? I was going. This is so uncomfortable. In what respect? Watching Brando doing the, <laughs> do it doing the yes bl- yes Mr. McGlue. <laughs> it's never made any sense because yeah. there's no R in the name Magoo. But anyway, yeah. Unless it's silent. Uh, is and. The, as again, it's like, 
Uh, sta standard, standard movie gag approaching on runway four. You could see every joke coming. This oh no! See, I missed a bunch of them because I. Oh, oh, that was a joke. No, oh. nope. I could see. Oh yeah, let's see. Oh, he has to take the old lady. Now he has to take the daughter. Oh, how many other people are going to show up? Here we go. Oh mm. look, they all want and they they want to elect officials. Everybody's going to want a helmet. It's uh, yeah, so, like yeah, see, yeah. yeah, see this coming. Yeah. Uh, Part, again, there are some surprising parts. There are some moments I think are actually pretty good. None of them involve Marlon Brando. <laughs> uh, but overall, no, I don't think. Never, I, I don't. I, I cannot believe this one. Up the uh, Pulitzer for uh, uh, mm. the play. Maybe the play is radically different, but I kind of doubt it. And a Tony. And a Tony. <laughs> what a what a year that must have been for Broadway. But. Uh, yeah, I cannot say, I can't recommend this movie. It's just, it, if you're interested in like, okay, 1950s portrayal of Japanese people as a historical artifact, yeah, sure. But if you want a movie that's funny and entertaining, no, I would stay away from this. Uh, what about you? Dell, uh, I just, it was one of the most boring films I've seen in a long time. It's like, I almost liked some of the characters, but not really. Um, and the ones I liked were all Japanese, which is fine, but I didn't know what they were saying. I had to, you know, guess that Marlon was actually translating what they were saying into English. Um, I get the point of his character. I just think it's a dumb point. And I mean, given the time period, I will still give this film the one star because I think for the time period, this film could have been a lot meaner. And it could have very easily glazed over any attempts to show the Japanese culture without a filter. And it does. You know, the, the dance at the end and some of the other things felt just Japanese on display for no, no other point than to show it. But we don't need this character. We don't need a white person playing it. Uh, we don't need the stereotypes reinforced. Most of... Um, most, but, yeah, sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, luckily, with this film... All of that whitewashing stopped. This was the last whitewashing. Oh, wait, uh, we proved that's not true. Yeah, that's that. Stum, stum. And remember, Johnny Depp is partially Native American, maybe. <laughs> yeah. The, the thing, just I want to throw in a little about the white characters. Most of them, like the, the Colonel is a cartoon. Mm -hmm. uh, the Captain Fisbee is also a cartoon. He's the spineless one. Eddie Albert's character undergoes that he's originally there as a psychiatrist to evaluate Fisbee because the colonel thinks he's gone crazy because he's gone native. And in the space of, I think, five minutes, Fisbee convinces him to completely throw away his career as a psychiatrist and stay there and grow plants. And honestly, when Eddie Albert is discussing his obsession with plants, he sounds crazy. And it doesn't make any sense. It comes out of the, nowhere. The weirdest part is when he turns to Fisbee and says, you are my wife. <laughs> Goodbye, city life. Because <laughs> that's pretty much what happened. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the white characters are all cartoonish and boobs. Um, bumbling is a, is a word I would use. And yeah. bumbling upsets Holmes no end. Um, <laughs> but yeah, quite honestly, they are more bumbling than the Japanese, except for Sakini. So yeah, just no, no just no. And, you know, hopefully we'll get some better portrayals of Japanese people that don't need the help of white people, The Last Samurai. Oh, 
Yeah, because uh, only Tom Cruise can save Japan. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. we have finished this uh, this series yes, on whitewashing, have. and I think that we've learned Don't that do there's it. a lot of em- embarrassing <laughs> portrayals out there. Yes, and can uh, can can we stop doing that, please? I mean, not only can we stop doing that, we we can stop doing that for sure. But first. We would like to go over this week's poll question again because mm. we love getting your answers and we love giving out bumpy bucks. Oh, we the do. cryptocurrency that's made of oats and wheat and honey and all things pure. Yeah, because we keep them stacked up here for too long, they develop a smell. <laughs> that's uh that that's bumpy. Yeah. <laughs> okay. What film did you watch? Think was amazing, touching, powerful, or poignant, but which you never need or want to see again. Let us know, and how can you do that? Actually, Max, will you tell our listeners how they can do that? No, I won't. Okay, well, you can do <laughs> yes, that you by can do emailing that by, us. Nah, psych, <laughs> fake out. <laughs> yes, you can do that by, by going to our website at maxmikemovies.com and leaving a comment. You can uh, leave one on Facebook or via Twitter you mm. can, uh, at maxmikemovies.com. You can find us that way. You can email us directly because we have a direct email address that goes directly to our directives. And, and you'll get twice the bumpy bucks. Yes, you do. It's us. <laughs> it's us, us at maxmikemovies.com. That's how you know we're patriotic because our our address is us. Huh? Yeah. yeah. It's <clears> a <throat> small letters, Max. It's not. Oh, uh, right. Yeah. So, but we. this means, of course, being at the end of this series whitewashing and boy am i glad we're at the end of this because i'm in this uncomfortable for uh, uh, two months in a long time Mm. uh, that didn't involve a rash (laughs) and uh we're going to be moving on to a new series and i wonder max if you could tell us not only what that series might be but what film we will be starting with that series would you max now tell us what that series is and what film we'll be starting with if you would please to tell us the series and what stop that film. just just stop <laughs> we are going to he be hates me yes yes i do <laughs> where our next series is called i've forgotten how much i hate time travel and we're going to be talking about movies that involve time travel i think you think you could follow that yes <laughs> about movies that use time travel as an integral part of the plot not necessarily movies where like people people travel back in time and then that's it, you know, like a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court or Peggy Sue Got Married, where the time travel isn't really integral to the plot. I mean, it sets up the plot and then disappears. Now, th- these are movies where time travel is a major plot point, which is why they make us crazy. <laughs> they never quite work. And we're going to start off with a very recent movie, which, we're, uh, which came out, I believe, in 2020. From the gravelly voice of Christopher Nolan. He has a gravelly voice? <laughs> no, he just likes ha- having actors who do, you know. Where are they? <laughs> ah, Swear to me, because I'm Batman. <laughs> Did you use fabric softener? That's a deeper. <laughs> yeah. We'll be watching Tenet. Oh. Yes. Uh, Tenet, anyone? Exactly. The film about using time travel to win Wimbledon. And so you too can win Wimbledon with us next week on Max Mike Movie. This has been a co-production of The Voice of Max and The Movie Wrench. Wrench.